0: Before I call up Scott for the last time, I just want to um, note that Scott, come bless us one more time. Let's welcome him. So, apologies that I'm going to have to jet right after I'm done, and it is not because I am defriending you or unfriending you. It's it's that I will have to catch a plane uh, uh, headed home to Nashville. So. Um, Thank you, Duke, for the invitation. And Joanna, wherever you are, is Joanna in here or is she out taking care of other people? Thank you for taking such good care of me all the way through to getting here and um, just telling her this morning, it's just been very easy to to, uh, uh, communicate with you all because Joanna is so swift uh, in getting back with whatever I need to know. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, this morning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it to a new level. Um, we've talked a good bit about Jesus as our friend, uh, talked a little bit about us as sisters and brothers. Uh, today, I want to talk about us uh, as not only the friends of Jesus, but the daughters and sons of God, uh, and brothers and sisters to one another. Um, this, is a, this is a really important Theme uh, this morning, and I'm going to I'm going to end the message after after talking about the familial stuff in the kingdom of God. I will end the message uh, with a reflection on uh, the current uh, moment that we're in with respect to racial reconciliation and justice. Uh, the timing is is unusual for me because in my own city, the alt right has descended on my city, on my hometown this weekend uh, for a white lives matter. Uh, rally, which I think we would all agree that white lives matter, but that's not the heart of this movement. The movement is uh, is a, essentially to spit in the face of of the uh, racial reconciliation and justice efforts, the good good efforts that are going on all over all over the place. And uh, so rampant racism has descended on my city uh, this weekend, which. Uh, Compels me all the more to go back to this foundational reality that we are in Christ Jesus indivisible because we are siblings and we are sons and we are daughters. Uh, so, with that thought, I'd, I'd like to turn us to uh, turn our attention to Romans 8 and I'm going to read verses 12 through 17 as the Scripture upon which the teaching today will be based. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. I want to hone in especially on what it says in verse 14 that all, all, inclusive word there, an embracing word there, all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God in Christ. So, first of all, Christianity is not a men's club. It's not a boys' club. Uh, This is a metaphor. In the same way that Women are included, and girls are included in the sonship language. Boys and men are included in the bride language. The scripture gives us all sorts of familial metaphors to help us understand the many affectionate ways in which God desires to relate to us, and and in which God desires for us to relate to one another. So with respect to God being our father, uh, J.I. Packer said this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much that person makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls this person's whole outlook on life, then this person does not understand Christianity very well yet. So today I want to I unpack um, some of the implications of what it means to be adopted by God. Not just friends, but siblings. I want to look at the yallness, the, the, the usness, the we-ness of what it means to live together uh, in the family of God. So the first attribute of God as Father that we can consider this morning is his tenderness. Verse 15 draws that out where it says you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry Abba father okay so again we've got a multi-ethnic statement here that we in a multinational statement that we may not understand without a little bit of Greek and Aramaic background father Comes from the Greek word pater. It was a language that was spoken by Greeks. Greek language spoken by Greeks. Abba is a straight up transliteration of an Aramaic word that Jewish people used. So here we have Paul again, the grace and peace guy, the Jew and Gentile guy, coming at us again with the Greek and Jew reference, Abba Father. It's an intimate address, Abba. It's the cry of small children, uh, equivalent of Papa or Daddy. And to Jewish ears at this time, uh, this would be an irreverent way. It would be considered an irreverent way to address God because in the Jewish Mindset at this time. God was anything but intimate and personal. He was transcendent and other, which, of course, he is. This great paradox of of the nature and character of God, that he's holy and totally other, and yet he's intimately near and with us and for us. He's a consuming fire, but he's also our daddy. But, you know, here, here I think is what... Contemporary American Christians can learn from the Jewish tradition. There was such a reverence and such an awe about the notion of, of being anywhere close to the person of God. Whenever a scripture was read publicly, they would replace Yahweh with the word Adonai because they didn't regard their own lips as being worthy of speaking the name Yahweh. The scribes would abbreviate Yahweh, because they didn't feel that their hands were worthy to, to, to write the full name of God, because he was too transcendent and holy for human lips to speak and for human hands to write. You know, And they have this picture in, their, in their, their history as well, when the high priest would, would go in at Yom Kippur at the Day of Atonement once a year into the most holy place, the holy of holies, to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people in the presence of God. They would tie a rope around his waist just in case he was struck dead in the presence of the consuming fire. And we have pictures of this in the Old Testament. There's a man named Manoah who, along with his wife, uh, they're both given a glimpse of God. And just on the basis of that one single brief glimpse of God, Manoah turns to his wife and says, we need to prepare to die because we've seen the Lord. You know, this is what Christians must learn from the Jewish tradition. We must come before him in a posture that is everything but casual. Everything but flippant. He is holy Holy, holy. But the fire, the consuming fire, is also your papa. Fear God, and you'll never have to be afraid of anything, including God. That's the message here. Adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Holy Spirit, bears witness that we are the daughters and sons, the heirs of God. How can this be true? Because of Jesus. He lived the life that we should have lived, but didn't because we couldn't. And he died the death that we deserved to die and experienced the separation from his father that we deserved to experience ourselves. And he did all this so that we would never have to taste uh, even a drop of his judgment uh, or or even experience a second, a nanosecond of, of separation from him. Jesus was rejected so we could be received. Jesus was despised so that we could be the recipients of the Father's affection. Fellow heirs with Christ we are referred to as. His life now becomes our life in the sight of God because we're clothed with his righteousness and beauty. His death accomplishes no condemnation for us. I love Romans 8. It starts with, it comes on the heels, first of all, of Paul at a, at a low point in many, in many respects where he says, wretched man that I am. It's Romans 7. Wretched man that I am. It's one of my favorite parts of the Bible is all of the honest screw-ups that God puts in there to remind us that if there's hope for them there's hope for us prostitutes you know abusers of power like King David and so on wretched man that I am Paul cries out who will separate me who will rescue me from this body of death thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord what we sometimes don't remember is that we get Romans 8 as the answer to Romans 7. That's why Romans 8 is there. And many theologians have referred to Romans 8 as the greatest chapter ever written because it's the one chapter that tells the whole story of God. And and that chapter that tells the whole story of God starts with a word to guilty, shame-filled people. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. And, and, and it gets even better. At the end, no separation. I am sure, he says, that nothing in all creation will ever, 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 ever be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And you're part of creation. You, you can't do a single thing to separate yourself from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. No separation. This is a, a statement of hope. Having suffered with him, we will be glorified with him. This is a, this is a, 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 a foretelling of the future, of the, the final chapter that's already been written and published, but not yet realized. The happily ever after that confirms that every other happily ever after story is actually true. Those happily ever after stories that we we read with, with children to escape reality are actually the invitations for us to re-enter reality. Reality ends with happily ever after in Jesus. What does this mean for those who know God as Abba Father? What does this mean for the no con- non condemned, never to be separated ones? What does this mean? It means that our long-term, worst-case scenario is resurrection and everlasting life. That is as bad as it will get in the long term. No more death, mourning, crying, or pain. Resurrection, everlasting life, no shame, no condemnation, no separation. That is as awful as it's going to get in the long term. That helps me with my anxiety. It helps me with my worry to have the big picture in mind. Fear God, and you'll never again have to be afraid of anything, especially God. Tenderness. That's the environment for the second way in which God comes to us as Father, and that is as disciplinarian. To go together. But his discipline always comes to us in the context of his tenderness. His vision, it says in verse 13, is to help us put to death the deeds of the body so that we will live. All who are sons of God, it says, are led by his spirit. What that means is we take a revisionist approach to the way that we read. Scripture, but it's not in order to revise the Scriptures, but it's so that the Scriptures will revise us. See, because we don't stand on the Word of God, we stand under it as daughters and sons of Abba. God will sometimes say no to our dreams and our hopes and aspirations so as to give us better dreams and hopes and aspirations. Johnny Erickson Tata, who has become a friend of ours in the last couple of years, has uh, she lives in California. She's a woman in maybe her mid to late 60s who's been confined to a wheelchair for uh, essentially her whole life since she was in her mid-teens where she had an accident diving into the Chesapeake Bay, became a quadriplegic, and, and now she leads this um, you know, global ministry to people with special needs and disabilities. God has used her life magnificently, but not without pain, not without sorrow. She's fought cancer. She's been through all sorts of hardship and continues to go through all sorts of hardship. One of the things that Johnny recently said in, in something that she wrote, and I think she has the credibility to say these kinds of things, God allows things sometimes that he hates in order to accomplish things that he loves. You yeah, I was having a conversation with, with, with a couple of people last night, and it, it dawned on me, in the middle of that conversation, as, as love was shared between two friends and compassion was shown between two friends, the most compassionate people that I know are people who have suffered. And I love what Anne Lamott says, it's okay to realize that you are crazy and very damaged because all the best people are. God will sometimes say no to our dreams in order to give us a better dream, to give us a better yes. So, as a parent, I'm a dad, there's one experience with our children, I think, that illustrates this reality and and sort of the tone and heart behind God's discipline, Um, and that is when we took our daughters, our young daughters, into what doctors call the well child visits. And what that means is you get shots, <laughs> right? You, you go in the well child, you take the healthy child into the doctor, I don't know, three or four times when we were parents, you know, at six months, at 12 months, at 16 or 18 months or whatever. You take them in healthy to get their shots and uh, Patty and I went in together. We because we knew that it would be a traumatic experience for, for each of our daughters. And every time the nurse would give me a role and Patty a role in the in the shot process, Patty's role was to whisper in their ear, it's going to be okay, and to express the tenderness and the kindness, and my job was to hold them down. <laughs> right? And 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 I would get these looks from our daughters, like I've I thought we were on the same side. My papa has now become my oppressor. My, my Abba has now become my enemy. It was the look on their faces as I held them down. And then they would look over to mom like, what are we going to do about him? <laughs> and then the needle of life pricks their skin to inject the serum of life and they don't even realize what's going on. They think the opposite is going on. But what's really going on is protection. Safety enhancing, needling. You ever feel like God is holding you down? You ever feel needled by him? You ever feel like he is against you? You ever feel like he's being just a bit too aggressive with you and with your life, with your one life? John Owen, the, the great Puritan, said, always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And sometimes we need a little bit of help from Father who knows best from the one whose wisdom, if we understood it, if we were able to know everything that he knows and see everything that he sees, we would be on board with every hardship. That, that hymn that says, whatever my God ordains is right, would make more sense to us. It would make suffering and hardship and difficulty no less difficult. But it would provide a context that God's no is, is going to lead to a better yes. I love what C.S. Lewis, who lost a w- his wife from cancer, said. Heaven will work backwards and turn even agony into a glory. And, and, and it's essentially, you know, Lewis saying, it's like fallen existence in a fallen world with these broken bodies and broken lives that we lead. It's as if we're in a nightmare right now But we're going to wake up from that nightmare. And just like the nightmares we experience now, when we wake up, if I have a dream that that I lost something or someone precious to me, and then I wake up, and there she is laying right next to me, I love her even more. I feel more deeply grateful for her presence in my life. Because... For a moment there, it felt like I lost her, but I really didn't. That's the beauty of the new heaven and the new earth. God is going to give back a thousandfold everything that we lose. Beyond our wildest dreams, He's going to give back everything that we've lost. Every heartache will be be transformed to joy. Every devastating, gut-punching, soul-crushing loss will give us an even greater capacity to enjoy the reality that it's all going to be given back. Sometimes God allows what He hates in order to accomplish what He loves. The third is relationship, where it says, we cry, Abba, Father. The the, the original language here communicates a bold cry, enthralled intimacy. Intimacy. John Stott says this the Greek word for we cry, which is kratzo, is such a strong word that it expresses a loud, spontaneous, emotional cry. Faith expressed, in other words, is supposed to be gutsy, visceral, felt. Theology is supposed to catch on fire and lead to an animated, way of life the enemy to this this cry is what you could call nominal christianity which is standard christianity in united states standard nominal american christianity anemic bored and boring More cultural than personal. More peripheral to my life than core. More small than glorious. More of a tack-on to the American dream than life before the face of a cosmic king who loves me. More a matter of convenience than what drives my very center. Nominal, anemic, cultural Christianity. God on the outskirts of my life. Never any fire, never any electricity, never any romance. The Poet Wilbur Reese described this nominal, bored and boring, anemic, American, asleep in the light Christianity this way. I would like $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep but just enough of him to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or to pick beets with an immigrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack, please. I would like to buy $3 worth of God. Scripture knows nothing of this. This is not a description of a heart that has been made alive by the Holy Spirit. It's a description of a poser. It's a description of cultural Christianity that knows nothing of Jesus. You know, Paul in chapter 7, when he cries out about his coveting, His deepest want, his deepest desire, whatever it takes is to be made new, is to be transformed, that's his cry for help. His cry for help isn't, don't change, it's not change all these people out here. Change the political landscape. Change them and them and them and them so my life will be more cozy and comfortable. No, his cry is, Change me. The problem with the world is not out there. The problem with the world is in here. And he can say that freely. Without hiding. Because no condemnation. Because Abba. Because future glory. Because the love gush at the end of Romans 8. His environment With this God who is a consuming fire, whose truth, if looked at, honestly, deeply convicts him and cuts him to the core, is completely safe all at the same time. Paul wants a faith that moves him, that gets in his face, that pushes back on the worst in him in order to bring out the best in him. He doesn't want to return to his old ways where he was popular and famous and killing it. He doesn't want that old life anymore. He called it shit. He used that very word in the Greek in Philippians. We're afraid to translate it, I, 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 I'm afraid, into what it actually says. We don't want an apostle saying a word like that. He said a word like that to repudiate everything that he'd built his life on before. Because once you've had Broadband, you're not going to go back to dial-up, right? Blended family, that's the last part. All shapes, all sizes, all cultures, all colors, Catholic in the true sense of the word. And the time to embrace a kingdom of all shapes, all sizes, all cultures, all colors is not in the new heaven and the new earth where we will have to worship Jesus together with every nation, tribe, and tongue. No, the time to lean into that is not then. The time to lean into that is now. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We must understand that the way we live our lives is part of the answer to that prayer that we pray. This pairing of Abba and Father together, of Aramaic and Greek together, you know, the pairing together of grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have a man in the Apostle Paul who was trained. In schools that produced rabbis that would pray, Thank you, my God, that I am not a Gentile. Thank you that I'm not a woman. Thank you that I'm not a slave. And in comes Jesus, and in comes the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, who were the first three converts to Christianity but a Jew, a Gentile, and a slave? And can you believe it? A rabbi who was trained in schools that would teach future rabbis to pray this way would write the words, In Jesus Christ there is no male or female, no slave or free, no Jew or Gentile. All are one, all are equal. All are daughters and sons in Christ Jesus. And here we have the book of Romans A letter written by a brown man to a white community using language like this, brothers, the language of we, the language of us, we cry. Abba Father. You know, along the way, at some point, Paul had welcomed the notion that God was there in part to disturb his sensibilities. To, to, to work it into his heart and to work it into his guts, how can you say you love God and curse those who are made in his image? So you remember Charlottesville, right? I'm not sure if you ever got, um, got hold of that photograph that went viral of Officer Darius Nash, a black policeman from Charlottesville, and the picture is of Officer Nash standing in front of KKK members, neo-Nazis, people waving Confederate flags, people holding their arms like this and saying words like Heil. This was a previous demonstration before Charlottesville, but, but not unlike that demonstration. Officer Nash was standing there to protect people who would just assume he didn't even exist. Doing his duty, fulfilling his call. And of course, when the picture went viral, everybody's calling him a hero, and somebody interviewed him, and he said, I don't feel like a hero. I swore to protect my city. And that's what I was there to do. I don't think that makes me a hero. I'm just doing what I believe in. But, Officer Nash, with all due respect, in your case, doing what you believe in did make you a hero. The thing is, when I look at pictures like that and I get angry like I do, and it's right to get angry about stuff like that, I realized that I also need that kind of protection because of subtle supremacies that have resided in my own heart all of my life. I went into a Jamaican art gallery once. I had been a Christian for about two years and in that Jamaican art gallery was a painting depicting Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper, and they all looked Jamaican. And it really troubled me. Because the image that I had always had of Jesus was of a guy with beautiful straight hair about here, blue eyes, white skin, could have been a member of the Bee Gees. That's what Jesus was supposed to look like. A white American with long hair. That's what what it shows us in the children's Bibles. That's how he's illustrated there. That's how he's illustrated in the nativity scenes. He's a white dude in the Mel Gibson films. The truth is, that Jesus, in reality, was a brown-skinned Middle Eastern refugee, Jewish man with no home, no place to lay his head, never spoke a word of English, never stepped foot, never stepped foot on American soil, you know, like I mentioned last night, and yet he thought of people like me at the ends of the earth, down the corridors of time, with the same degree of love and protection. That he felt for Peter, James, and John, and Mary, and Mary Magdalene. You know, like Officer Nash, Jesus did what he believed in, extending protection to the other who would just assume he didn't even exist. Jesus was the brown Jewish man crucified by white Roman Gentiles. And some of the first words out of his lips as he was dying at the hands of his oppressors was, Father, forgive them. Abba, forgive them so that they can become part of our us. Forgive them for they know not what they do. Hurting people hurt people, Father. And it is only hurting people who hurt people. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. You hear echoes of Dr. King there, don't you? Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So as we think about him as our Father, our Father. The Father of our friends and the Father of many whom we would just as soon treat as enemies. As we understand his willingness, even his eagerness to mess with us and push back on us, To give us a big fat no so that he can show us a world of a much better yes. Will we allow him to hold us down and to prick us with that life-giving needle and to fill us with that life-giving serum? So that all dividing walls will come down through Jesus. And so that we can get started now with this whole every nation, tribe, and tongue thing because there are massive, massive horizontal implications to the vertical grace and forgiveness and kindness that we've received in Christ who's removed all dividing walls, who's ripped the curtain into the Holy of Holies open, giving us full access through Him. No more need for a high priest. No more need for ropes around the waist. Because if through Jesus we fear God, We never ever have to be afraid of anything, especially God. Thank you for having me. Can we pray? Father in heaven, thank you that you are just that. You are our Abba Father who came for Jews and Gentiles, for slave and free, for male and female, for young and old, for Middle Eastern and European and American and Latino, and Native American, and every other race, nation, tribe, and tongue, thank you, Father, for this glorious vision of otherness under the umbrella of oneness that you've called us even to participate in the life of the Trinity, who is forever three and forever one. We are so grateful that you did not leave us without a witness. We want so much more than $3 worth of you. God, would you you give us a heart to lay it all down in surrender so that our Christianity is more personal than cultural, more core than peripheral, more glorious than small, more life before the face of a cosmic king than attack onto the american dream more at the center than a matter of convenience more fire and electricity and romance than anemic with you on the outskirts be our center abba we pray amen